Hi, I'm Jared Fuller. Welcome to Scratching the Surface. On this week's episode, I have a really wonderfully wide-ranging conversation with the speculative architect and director Liam Young. Liam is the co-founder of Tomorrow's Thought Today, an urban futures think tank, and Unknown Fields, a nomadic research studio. He's also the director of the Masters in Fictions and Entertainment Postgrad program at SciArc in Los Angeles. Liam's latest project is called Planet City, and it is a film and a book that tell the story of a fictional city for the entire population of the Earth. He was also recently a visual consultant on the Apple TV Plus film Swan Song, starring Mahershala Ali. In our conversation, Liam and I begin with his architecture background and why he thinks the architect's skills are sometimes wasted on just making buildings. We talk about the elasticity of the term architect and how his interest in spatial storytelling led him into working in filmmaking, speculative design, and science fiction. We also talk about the SciArc program he runs and the types of students he has there, as well as his own work, whether it's working on a big Hollywood movie like Swan Song or his own sort of personal work like Planet City. If you like Scratching the Surface, I hope you consider supporting it on Patreon. We offer three monthly tiers, $3 for students, $5 for patrons, and $10 for superfans that give you access to all sorts of bonus content like a monthly newsletter, early episodes, full transcripts, and exclusive bonus interviews each month that all help financially support this show. So if you like the show, if you want to see it continue, I hope you consider joining us on Patreon. You can visit patreon.com slash surface podcast for all the details and to sign up. Thank you for listening. And here is me talking with Liam Young. Hearing a little bit more about your early career, you studied architecture, you worked uh, as an architect for a couple years at, at Zaha Hadid, and I've heard you in other interviews talk about sort of that experience of being an architect and sort of immediately or very quickly wanting to move beyond that. And I'm curious if you could talk a little bit about that experience being an architect in a more traditional sense, and where these other interests in speculative design, in fictions, where those started to come in and how those kind of germinated in that early part of your career? So that's a big question. Where shall I begin? So my background is as an architect and urbanist. I studied at a pretty conservative school in Australia where there's really only one narrative of design, and that is place, um, localism, place specificity. And, and in that context where the weather, the climate, the environment is so extraordinary and so pervasive, at least when I was studying, that was the pretty much the dominant way that we would respond, or the, the dominant systems that would dictate a response from us as designers. And in a way, some of that still plays a role in the work that I do. I still think about my role as a designer and the conception and notion of site for the most part. Mm -hmm. Now I operate within the sites of popular media. I right. operate as a filmmaker and a director that, that, but I treat film as a site mm. to design within, uh, at the same time. I'm interested in exploring a more expanded notion of site 
Mm-hmm. And you know, the idea that a site or a place as we once defined it in architecture used to be about a physical location and the direct adjacencies of buildings around it, flows of circulation and traffic. That's the way that we were trained. And that's the way that you know, traditionally architects understand site. But I guess all of my work has really been about expanding that notion to think about site in a planetary sense and that there is no singular site, but really in order to understand this one little studio within which I'm sitting in Los Angeles, you need to think about LA, the broader context of California, the ideological context of America in this moment and the historical conditions that got us here. You need to think about the material flows that take us from this room all the way across the earth to a hole in the ground in Inner Mongolia, where we dig out rare earth minerals. And this, I would argue, is really a modern conception of place, is to see ourselves within this constellation of Mm. planetary networks and systems. So the frustration came from traditional architecture that was so focused on buildings as singular objects. That's how I was trained. The early part of my career, I was working in what is loosely described as the star architect system for architects (laughs) Zaha Hadid and so on. This is what is understood to be the pinnacle of the profession. But really what it is, is about designing singular sculptural objects for dictators, the mega rich, um, beach houses for, for the barons of late capitalism. Right. And if your interests as mine were, were about somehow creating work that would insert itself within this scale of planetary flows, these sort of trophies to capital were extraordinarily unfulfilling and um, problematic in the best case case scenario. So my work, I guess, started to evolve from thinking about architecture as the sculpting and shaping of of buildings as objects into, you know, following the trends that I saw being the systems that were changing our lives and cities. And I started getting more interested in technologies mobile systems, um, uh, nomadic forms of infrastructure. You know, we used to understand cities and and the way that we live in them as being defined by large scale monumental infrastructure like highways Mm -hmm. and water networks, power grids. We used to understand how we acted as communities within space through the mechanisms of public squares and streetscapes and public spaces. But as technologies started to play a more critical role in our lives, they, get, they began to displace those systems that a traditional form of architect might have relative remit over. Um, so now our relationship to cities is much more conditioned by our access to the network, right. um, the strength of our Wi-Fi signal, um, public spaces have been swallowed into the cloud and are no longer determined by um, the, the rules and regulations set in place by a democratically elected government and are now shaped by a dude in a hoodie 
wearing sneakers. <laughs> right. Um, right. Our public discourse has shifted from the open spaces of cities and public squares to um, uh, status updates and vertical scrolling feeds. So if I wanted to stay relevant as a designer, I just saw that the site in which I should be operating was no longer physical sites in cities, but was the conditions of the network. It was trying to make work that would exist across this more um, planetary conception of site and place. And inevitably that meant I started writing stories and making films because these were mediums that lent themselves more to the pace of change. Uh, architecture is an extraordinarily slow medium. Um, but also these, these stories could act across multiple timelines. They could act across multiple sites. There would be ways of cutting through the complexities of the modern world that we all occupy. And they also would shape and form a way that I could start to connect to audiences outside of the architecture discipline. And we can come back to some of those points, but I guess the, the idea is that, um, you know, the, there are different types of architects and the world still needs the type that, that makes and shapes physical buildings in the same way that the world still has Louis Vuitton handbags. Um, right, right. But, but to stay as that kind of architect, I think, would mean a, a journey into irrelevance. Um, and that's not where I wanted to operate. <laughs> right. That I mean that that makes a lot of sense to me. And I have two sort of two related questions ab about that. Um, the f and I'll ask you both of these at the same time, and you can kind of answer them however you want. The first one is you you said something about how how in thinking about these things you inevitably started writing stories and making films and i wonder how inevitable that actually was um uh, i'm curious was that something that was also an interest at the time were you were you interested in sort of uh you know filmmaking science fiction all of these things that are so pervasive in your work now and then you know, where did those things come in or, or how did those mediums become the, th the medium that made sense for you to kind of work through these questions? And the reason I ask that is because I could, I, I hear you saying that and I could also hear, I could imagine another version of you or someone like you is like, well, I'm going to go work in tech. I'm going to, mm. I'm going to build digital things. And you didn't mm. go that way. And I'm kind of curious about how the direction you did go played out or like you know how that kind of happened yeah i'd always been interested in a form of architecture that within the discipline is often described as paper architecture mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but more broadly i'm kind of known i guess for talking about it as speculative architecture right and speculative architecture speculative design critical design people like dunn and raby have been fighting for decades for the legitimacy of those forms of right. speculation within a product design context. And there, it was actually relatively new. And I would say they were real pioneers of that and what mm -hmm. their work in, you know, at, at schools like the RCA, now they're at um, Parsons in New York, mm -hmm. they really helped to shape a generation of practitioners that, that, that work in this way as speculative designers. 
Um, in the in the context of architecture, though, speculative design is nothing new, because of the massive systems of capital that are required to mobilize in order to make something like a building. Architects have always been speculating. We've right. always been making projects that had no intention of being built. It's kind of what we always did in the gaps between, you know, um, uh, fertile economies. Right, right. Um, it, it's something we were doing back in neoclassical times. Like Lido was a speculative architect. Boulay was a speculative mm, architect. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. As a student, I was geeking out on um, architects from the 60s, like um, Super Studio, yeah, yeah. Archigram. And these were my heroes. But in, in Australia, they were kind of like, you know, being a kid under the covers with a torchlight reading a comic book after your parents had told you to go to bed. They weren't the sorts of things that we were supposed to be talking about. Um, in the 80s, like architects like Liebskind and Zaha, yeah, yeah. that, you know, the economy wasn't at a point that would take the risks on building their buildings. So they were doing these extraordinary drawings and later in their career, they found legitimacy for those drawings by actually translating them to built form. But I was always much more interested in the way that they operated as mechanisms of culture. And same with Archigram, I would argue that, you know, this is a group that for operating post-war in the United Kingdom, they were reacting against the, the post-war housing at the time, which was massive, monumental, cast concrete, there was an attempt for some kind of permanence after the upheaval of the war. And they were talking about new materials like plastics and you know, mm -hmm. totally reorganizing cities that made of plastic and pods that would build themselves and dismantle themselves that would pop up like a hot air balloon and then disappear again. And I would argue that they had much more influence over generations of European architects purely through the way that they would launch their fictional projects like, you know, Walking City or Plug-in City or Instant City mm -hmm. um, in magazines. Archigram, you know, comes from the term essentially telegram and, you know, they made these magazines. That was their architecture. Um, but they had more scope of influence than any singular architect making a physical building, I would argue. Um, uh, and I think, you know, generations of architects that did end up building, um, built differently because Archigram's fictions existed in the world. So they were the kinds of projects that I was fascinated by. But I was incredibly disappointed by the realities of what happened when a lot of those architects ended up getting built commissions. <laughs> right, right, right. I never thought that that's that like the the work they were doing as speculations ultimately would succeed or fail or be judged as to whether they could be built or not right i was much more interested in how the fiction operated in the world on its own terms mm. and i guess that's where i began was to try and think about speculative architecture not as something we do in between real commissions from clients asking us to build stuff, not something we do while we're teaching, not something we do while we're waiting for the economy to come back, but rather something we do if we really want to be active and engaged in the forces that are shaping and changing the world at the pace that they are changing it. Um, so I started yeah, making fictional projects that had no other reason to be than to 
connect as they were as fictions to audiences. They weren't unbuilt competition entries. They weren't renderings that ultimately were trying to sell an idea to a client. They were just stories that I hope I was launching into the world with enough force they might find traction. Right. I, yeah, I love that. I think I think I think the the point you're making also about sort of this idea of speculative architecture existing forever sort of sets up one of the the big questions and things I was really interested in talking to you about, which is what you think it is, and you can answer this either generally or specifically in your own work about an architecture background, about going through the training to be an architect that, um, you know, is so fertile for moving into these types of practices, um, you know, that, that, uh, the, that there is this sort of rich tradition of architects thinking about these things. Um, let me ask this question in a very straightforward way. How do you think writing speculative stories, working on these projects with an architecture background, um, what does that give you that somebody who isn't just a writer, um, you know, or somebody from another field working in these, what is it about architecture that makes, you know, this these ideas so rich? I mean, I often think if I had my time over again, and, and if I now understand the work that I make, would I have gone to film school out of high school or yeah. would I have gone to architecture school? I still think that a big part of the types of stories that I tell and how I make them and how I tell them is conditioned by the fact that I have that background in spatial design. Exactly. I still think I would make the same choices because the way that I approach storytelling is from the perspective of world building. Ultimately, I think architecture is just the crafting of stories with and through space. Mm -hmm. And I think I'm still doing that. I still write on my customs form that I'm an architect. I still talk about myself as an architect, even though um, I don't make buildings. And the great tragedy for me of an architectural education is not um, what you're taught, but rather it's where people end up. You know, I think an architect's skills are wasted on just making building. I think there's a whole of different types of architects that exist in the world. It's a background and a training that, that asks us to understand and engage with technology, both physics and structural systems and material properties, as well as the technologies of visualization and communication. It's a background that is also cultural and social and asks us to engage in the philosophy of communities and placemaking. There aren't a huge amount of degrees that still exist that engage that breadth of subject matter. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think that breadth has been under attack systematically across the last several decades. And a lot of schools have disappeared into more specific vocational training. Yeah. But I still think there is some space for an architectural education that operates between culture and technology in a way that a lot of other disciplines don't. I think that's its strength. Um, uh, and I've always said that, you know, someone with an architectural background can go into a bar and have a fun conversation with a film director or an engineer or a scientist mm -hmm. or a technologist. Mm -hmm. um, 
and that's both a blessing and a curse you know it also means that architects think they can do everything um, right. there's, a, there's a there's a horrific tradition of architects as philosophers and architects you know thinking they understand the world to the point where they can impose their their vision of a right. future on top of everyone and that still happens today you know this image of the singular genius architect um fixing the world for everyone else is ripe and is really the tragedy of modernism but at the same time it means we can collaborate and we know how to listen and we can start to engage much more expansive projects that deal with a whole lot of the relevant themes that we must engage with as responsible citizens of the world so i think it's really important and it's why i still kind of i, I now run a master's program here in la but i still run it outside within an architecture school even though it's a it, you know essentially it's a it's a it's a program in visual storytelling and world building but i still think that coming at that from a spatial perspective is valuable um and i guess you know to answer the second part of your question it means that the films that I make, I think, are different because I'm a spatial designer, not mm. a traditional writer or filmmaker. I think right. that the films and, and products that come out of my studio um, in the master's program or that come out of my own personal studio aren't trying to compete or sit alongside the sorts of work that comes out of a traditional director or a traditional film program. You know, we don't approach storytelling from the perspective of script and character. That's not where we begin. Mm. We approach story from the perspective of world. And then we populate that world with characters. We role play what might happen within it. And that's how our narratives emerge. So it's a very different way of, of coming at story. It, it's, um, right. uh, it's a very spatial way of thinking about narrative. And I would hope that, you know, the type of films that I make couldn't be produced out of a film program or by a traditional film director. Equally, I have no interest in telling a kind of a coming of age story in a New York loft apartment where a, a guy's <laughs> arguing with his mother for an hour and a half. I'm, I'm not going to do Marriage Story 2 right. um, with Scarlett Johansson, uh, but I'll have a crack at Blade Runner 3. You know? <laughs> right. right. I, I want to, I, you set up a bunch of questions that I have. I want to talk about the the, the graduate program and some of your films specifically, but I do want to respond to something that you said earlier about um, sort of the elasticity of our, of the term architect and, and you still referring to yourself as, as architect. And I'll admit, I'm not sure if there's a question here, or if this is just a, a little rant that I, I need to have. Mm. Um, Cause I've, I've always been jealous of that, honestly, of, of sort of the, the architects, uh, sort of willingness to hang on to that term even when their work moves into to other spaces and i'm sure there are people that would would say that you are not an that your work is not architectural or that you are not an architect but i compare that with my field graphic design which just sort of always seems to want to shed that term graphic design and so we we well now you're communication designers or your product designers or your digital design and it's like you know I, I don't know there's just something about that sort of confidence uh and i don't mean confidence in singular genius but confidence in this term can evolve <laughs> this can be expansive like this yeah i mean it's it's, it's worth noting that the, the term architect is actually a legally protected term right like mm. like legally i'm not supposed to be calling myself an architect. um I'm not <laughs> well you just said that you just said that on the um, record <laughs> uh, 
Uh, yeah, exactly. Um, but there are different types of architect, right? There's information architect, systems right. architect. Right. Um, and I guess that's the way that I use the term. But I also do it because I want to make it clear to people that, you know, this is how I approach the work that I do. I approach it through the lens of spatial design and thinking. Um, and it becomes a shorthand in a way. Um, uh, and yes, in some circles, you know, I'm, I'm labeled a director, but I still say, you know, speculative architect and director, mm -hmm. because again, I think it distinguishes the work that we make from others. Um, and no, I, I think that no one self censors like architects within our own discipline. You know, no one in the world is running around labeling, oh, that's not architecture, that is, besides other architects. Right. Nobody cares about what we do. Uh, we have this extraordinary self importance. We're so famous to such a small and insignificant group of other people. It's yeah. extraordinary. Um, so I use the term because people think they know what an architect means, and it becomes interesting when an architect. Right. Is talking about a science fiction film, um, right? Or it gives me some kind of authority to to start to talk about and critique um, popular culture in that way. So I think it has a utility, and that's why I use it. But I would argue, I guess, that architects that don't do buildings, calling themselves architects, still is not a dissolution of the term that is unproductive. Right. Rather, it's a strengthening right. of the term and the profession. Exactly. Because it's a bunch of people out in the world finding new spheres to operate in and new ways they can be relevant. Um, yeah. And it's not that's not a weakening. That's that's not um, to diminish the the work that architects as building makers do. Um, but rather, it is to say that you know you can be an architect and a politician. You can right. be an architect and a city planner. You can be an architect and a curator or an architect and a games designer or a production designer. Um, I think you need to acquire a whole series of like other disciplinary skills and tactics in order to make those shifts. Um, but I still think there's utility in using the term architect in those other contexts. I think that's exactly right. I, I agree with that 100%. And it leads in nicely. I want to talk about the the fiction and entertainment postgrad program that you direct at, at SciArc. I'm you mentioned this earlier about this program living within an architecture program. I'm I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about how this program came about and kind of what your goals are for it. And then a little bit more about, you know, it, it's interesting that this sits within an architecture program. I'm curious to hear you talk a little bit more about that. Yeah, I mean, it's funny, a, a, a friend of mine, um, I don't know if he's appeared on the podcast before, Jeff Mano. Yeah, he's a, a, a writer, um, you know, spatial thinker, you know, node on the network, cultural agent, um, uh, the curator and author of Building Blog, you know, back in the, you yeah. know, the heady days of 90s blogs, uh, early noughties blogs, you know, it was the destination. Um, he's, he now kind of is here in LA as well, writing you know, short stories and, yeah. and books and writing for Hollywood now. He used to, I mean, he comes from a philosophy and writing background, but he kind of gravitated towards the architecture discipline for no other reason than what he described as being like res responding to the best invitations. You know, mm -hmm. Like, um, you know, he would go to a film school, but 
the most interesting invites he was getting happened to come from the architecture discipline. Um, right. And similarly with me, you know, I, I was looking to LA, obviously my personal work was um, becoming more and more film orientated. And although nothing actually gets shot and made in Los Angeles, all of the meetings where those projects begin still happen in the same bars, mm. the same cafes that have been happening in for 50 years. So you still have to be here. And you know, I started looking around and the most interesting offer I got was from SciArc, which is a really kind of best described as an independent art and design school, um, free of the bureaucracy of a large weighty institution like you know, UCLA or USC. Um, and there was freedom to just make a postgraduate master's program. Um, and there were no strings attached. There was no constraints around what that was. It was just going to be a space in which to carve out a curriculum that could entirely be mine. And you know, I looked around and thought, okay, well, knowing the work that I do now, knowing where I come from, what, what master's program would I have done if I was a student? And there wasn't really one <laughs> out there. <laughs> So that's what we did. We made one, right? The, the, the yeah. postgrad masters of fiction entertainment is a program that helps students with various design backgrounds, um, you know, architects, landscape architects, urbanists, graphic designers, production mm -hmm. designers, filmmakers, writers, philosophers, somehow transition through the methodologies of world building into careers in entertainment, uh, design research, um, uh, visual storytelling and world building. Um, and it's really about building on people's own backgrounds, not starting again and, and like wiping that slate clean and saying, okay, so you want to be a director now, all right, let's talk about the history mm -hmm. of film, but rather saying, okay, well, you know, you're already bringing to this program a really interesting skill set. You know, you've been exploring you know, the, the politics and strategies of landscape architecture for the last five years, you've invested a shit ton of money in a degree mm -hmm. um, exploring that. Yeah. Now you want to make video games. Well, how can we transition your mm. way of thinking into that space in a way that is going to be really productive, in a way that's going to um, create something that's really fresh and unique and new? What type of stories can you tell that someone without that background and training couldn't um that's what we do uh, another sort of two-part question and you started answering the first one so these the the students that go through this program are people with a variety of design backgrounds already is that right yeah mostly yeah. I mean, it's, it's a postgrad master so you have to have either a bachelor degree or you know, right. a master's degree in something else already right um but you know i'm in an extraordinary position of privilege in that i can curate um, a group of 20, 25 right. students each year. Um, I don't have to, you know, I'm not, it's not a type of program that, that the university sees as a cash cow that's just right. driving income where I have to accept students that I don't think are right, right. for the program. Right. Equally, I, you know, I'm not looking for like the best animator or the, the people that already have the most um, fleshed out skill sets. I'm looking for the people that are going to be benefiting most from the conversations that we have. Um, and I try and 
kind of curate a mix of interesting people that all aren't going to be like treading on each other's toes, trying to get the same job at the end of the program, but that have complementary skill sets that might start collaborating across the program with each other and might start forming relationships and studios within the program or afterwards. Um, so I'm interested in bringing someone who might come from a more literary background mm. and they might kind of operate more through text and narrative, but they might find an interesting relationship with someone that comes from a more visual background and they end up working together. You know, unlike a film school that might produce 150 directors every year, like where do these people go? Like what do they do afterwards? Yeah, yeah. I, I, I have no idea. Um, well, that was I my that was my that was my next question for you: is where do your students go? Are they do they go into entertainment? Are they becoming production designers? Are they built building video games? Or do any of them go back? Like they go back to architecture and take this new knowledge and and kind of apply that in a in a different setting. Yeah, I mean, the way that you describe it is is pretty accurate. We, we get a, two different types of students, really, and a million in between. But you know, very loosely, you can categorize them as escapees. <laughs> right, right, right. You know, someone who's maybe done you know, an undergraduate architecture degree. They've worked for a couple of years. And for whatever reason, the weight of the world, yeah. the compromises of, of the realities of making buildings, um, frustrations with the everyday life of the traditional form of that discipline is unsettling and unsatisfactory and they see us as an escape route um, right they spend a year with us um developing a kind of a knowledge of alternative industries you know they they make a whole series of networks and relation professional relationships with the mentors we bring into the program and they sort of achieve escape velocity and they go off and do other things. Um, and that may be, you know, there are people that are now working in the video games industry as level designers for mm. studios like Naughty Dog, who, you know, made Last of Us Part Two most recently, or mm. Sony Santa Monica Studios here in Los Angeles that, that, that do God of War. Um, uh, they might be environment artists, or they might go into, you know, film and art departments in various ways and operate as production designers or set designers or, increasingly now as environment artists or designers within virtual production studios or virtual art departments. Um, mm. You know, we're in a really interesting moment where the traditional workflows and software pipelines of the video game industry are starting to collapse together into the traditional software pipelines of the visual effects and the film industry. And they're sort of becoming one and the same thing. So. A lot of our students are kind of drifting back and forth between those territories of immersive experiences, VR, video game, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, live activations and live concert visuals, and um, the more traditional mediums of film, animation, uh, production design. Um, right. And yeah, we also get, you know, the other type of student is, is people that want to take technologies and methodologies of world building, um, visual storytelling, back into the disciplines that they come from. And they go back into architecture, but they operate much more as design researchers or mm, speculative okay. architects, or you know, they, they lead the sort of the more um, uh, public facing divisions of a, of a larger office 
creating their visualizations, creating their film work, creating their their renderings oh, for see. their yeah. speculative projects. Um, or they'll go into you know platforms like you know IDEO, Frog Design, like all these kind of mm-hmm. like interaction design. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, uh, what I would describe as applied world building studios, um, like Alex McDowell's experimental and so right. where they, they use the skill sets that might be more native to film and entertainment, but apply them to different kinds of contexts and real world problems and client briefs. Um, so it's, it's quite varied because we're able to keep the program relatively intimate. It really is about a, a space that allows people to develop their own voice and to interrogate models of practice and economies of practice. We take very seriously what it means to continue to make the type of work we make in the program outside of the institution. Right. Um, so more than any other program I've encountered, we, we talk about like, if you want to be an artist, okay, what are the different models of artist practice? How do you get a gallery? Do you want a gallery? Um, do you want to make NFTs? What, what does that shit show look like? Um, do you apply for grants and residencies? What's that form of artist? Do you want to teach and in order to make your art? What's the bread and butter daily grind that you might have to do in order to facilitate making the work you want to make? Or alternatively, who's going to pay you to continue to make that type of work outside of the safety and scaffolding of the institutional environment that you might begin it with. Um, and that comes out of the fact that in my discipline and probably many others, but, but certainly from my knowledge of, of, of architecture, you know, we might do extraordinary things in school or grad school, but we then go off, we package those extraordinary things into a PDF folio and send it to a bunch of architecture <laughs> offices. Um, and then, you know, two weeks later, we're doing car parking layouts. Um, and we'll never touch that kind of stuff that was really passionate that we were really passionate about. Again, um, you know, we're interested in creating an environment and a network and um, sort of um, conversations that that help people to figure out how they can continue to make work they care about, whilst also paying the rent and living a life that doesn't look like, you know doing these things as a hobby in between doing other stuff or doesn't look like being, you know, a struggling artist living in a warehouse on a mattress eating cornflakes for dinner. I agree. I agree with everything that you said. And I'm wondering if it could even be pushed further and you could make the argument that all, and you were, you were starting to do this earlier, all design is speculative design. You know, it, it starts from nothing or it starts from a series of constraints and it, it's, it only becomes not speculative when it is then actually put out into the world in some way, whether that is a building or a brand system, uh, you know, that during the process, it is a speculative process. And I see this with students in graphic design where speculative design is still a very abstract, it, it's still very young in the graphic design context who get really interested in these ideas when I show them, uh, you know, done in Raby or Meta Haven or your work. And then they're also like, yeah, but I need to get a job. And how am I going to get a job, you know, doing this world building? Mm-hmm. And so I, you know, I talk about branding is a type of world building. And I'm, I'm curious the value you see in thinking about 
these ideas of world building, of storytelling, of fictions, of entertainment, of media, when they go back into more traditional settings, and it's not just like we're making the video real, but you know, can can fiction play a part in the design of a building or a brand system? How do you kind of see those things coming together? Yeah, totally. I mean, I mean, it's funny as a as a as an architect, you're even in the traditional architect, you're a utopian designer, right? Right, right. You know, a lot of times the again it's such a slow medium that the you're not making a building for the world as it is now you're making it for the world in five ten or fifteen years time when actually the doors of what you're sketching on your napkin open um and at the same time you know someone's paying for this damn thing you can't go into a client's meeting and and like i've got this crazy idea for a dystopian city you're gonna love it it's gonna be horrific um Uh, let's build it. Um, you know, you have to be aspirational. Um, you have to talk about um, your projects in those terms. Um, so yes, I think to a certain extent, we're all kind of selling fictions, aren't we? I mean, the world yeah. in a post-truth world, everything is a fiction um, <laughs> right, right. from both sides of the aisle, you know, and, and really it's an armed race. Like at the moment in America, um, fictions of fear, um, Fictions of conspiracy seem to make more sense now than fictions of hope. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. uh, you know, so we're all, mm-hmm. you know, living in that context. Um, and I guess you know the the most pervasive fiction wins. So we better get good at telling the right kinds of stories. Um, right. But at the same time, um, I mean, Alex McDowell, who's a mentor of mine, um, you know, who's often talked about when we when we use the word world building or world making um formerly a production designer now you know running an agency called experimental which is focused on applying those strategies to you know uh, ford motor car company and their re-evaluations of who they are in the context of autonomous vehicles etc um he says that world building is medium agnostic Mm. and by what he means by that is that um their methodologies, their techniques, their way of thinking and understanding and visualizing the world that can be so broadly applicable, they're not specific to any particular discipline or, or medium of output. So I think there's immense value in this way of approaching problems um, to, to really kind of explore counter narratives and alternative to prototype those in such a way that allows us allows them to be lived um, as a way of testing and exploring ideas as a means to figure out the right direction one might take you know um, when very loosely I talk about you know, world building in the context of futures thinking as um, the prototyping of um, the prototyping of worlds as a means to sketch out and test out the directions that we might want to go, right? Like if mm-hmm. the future landscape ahead of us is this dark and shadowed territory, each imaginary world, each fiction that we might create is like a torchlight illuminating one part of that territory in front of us. And the more lights we shine, the more of that landscape becomes illuminated, the more easier it is to figure out how to navigate it and to map out the path we want to follow. So there is no story 
that is more or less useful than another. It's it's the plurality of right. worlds and world right. making that makes it interesting and valuable. You know, no singular narrative um, on its own terms is as useful as the opportunities that it opens up. So within a whole range of disciplines, I think that attempt to prototype possibilities is not just important, but also essential. I apologize for asking you a very big question about your work specifically right at the end here. Um, and, and I'm going to, you know, probably do a disservice to the, the scale of this work, but I'm, I'm curious about two of your two kind of recent projects. And I'm, I'm, I'm kind of curious to hear you talk about how they relate to each other and also how they are different. And one of them is Planet City, which is this, you know, massive sort of multi-format film and book that imagines a, the entire planet, you know, existing within a city that's based on, on the densest city in the world. uh, That if you put all of the people at that density, it would, it would be about 0.02% of the earth's Hmm. surface. Is that right? Yeah, that, 0.02%, okay. yes. Exactly. Okay. Uh, and so you made this you made this um, this film that's kind of imagining this world. You you built all this, you visualized, you know, this data. There's a book. Um, and people can watch clips of that, people can watch your TED talk uh, about that, which I think is is a great explainer of that. But then on the other side, you also did sort of production design and uh, consulting on the Apple TV Plus movie Swan Song. And I'm curious kind of how you think about that range of projects where it is 100% world building. You're working with this team. You know, you're you're imagining Planet City. And then you're working on a team within a more narrative kind of typical Hollywood film. Uh, how do you kind of bounce between those? Are those similar processes? Do you think about those as coming from the same ideas? Can you kind of just talk about the the philosophies and ideologies behind that kind of range of projects? Yeah, I mean, at, at the core of it, what, I, what I'm interested in doing is hijacking the mediums <laughs> of popular culture as a means to uh, tell what I think are critical ideas about our world. Right. Um, and this responds to some of your earlier questions about like the utility of world building and world making yeah. in other disciplines. Um, it relates to, you know, bigger questions about you know, why I think that these processes are valuable. Um, but really what, at the core of it, I'm interested in the ways that fiction is the most extraordinary shared medium. It, it's, it's how our culture yeah. has, always, has always shared and disseminated ideas. You know, we can go into a into a movie theater and we can laugh and cry. We can be moved in a way that um, staring at an architectural drawing or diagram sometimes can't, um, or at least the, the 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 forms of operating that are native to my discipline require many many years of training to develop a literacy within. Mm. Yet. Ever since we can sit up, we're put in front of a TV, we fall asleep in the pages of a novel, we spend our Friday nights watching the flickers of a movie screen. You know, we all have a literacy in story. And what we try and do is use fiction 
as a vessel mm. to contain important ideas about who we are and where we might be going. And sometimes um, they operate as kind of Trojan horses, you know, like a Hollywood production becomes an environment that is both going to entertain and thrill, but at the same time, it's not exclusive of also being able to educate and inspire right. and raise awareness or ask questions. So whether it's my own personal work or work for the Hollywood machine, I'm always trying to operate within those mediums because mm. if I really think that the ideas that I'm working with are valuable and important, then it's my responsibility. Um, it's a necessity to try and find the mechanisms through which I might be able to connect them to the broadest audience possible. A lot of times in, in, in our discipline um, or in art, in graphic design, you know, the term accessibility is, is leveled at someone like a dirty word. Um, um, but I yeah. think in, in this moment, like to, to try and be honest about how our ideas find traction, um, we need to be thinking about how they find audiences and how they find audiences outside of the echo chamber. Right. They find audiences outside of the, the forms through which, you know, we normally deliver ideas in dark lecture theaters or books that are in, you know, boutique specialist art bookstores. Um, so I think story and film fiction, Hollywood, um, is amazing at reaching people. So, I mean, that's why I'm here in LA and, and that's why, you know, we take on projects like um, Swan Song or, you know, there's X number of kind of films and TV shows that we're involved in right now that are in development. Um, mm. And they're as important to me as my personal work. Um, you know, I, I, do music, I, I did a music video um, which was based on um, a animated film that I made for Athens and Documenta. And I'm sure, you know, that's, that's in, in the context of the art world, that that's a pretty well trafficked exhibition. Yeah. You know, it, it has a weight and a currency in that context, but the music video now has, I think 11 million views or something ridiculous. Um, right. A lot of those people are just interested in the track and they've got it on repeat in the background. But some of those people, certainly more that went to the, the, than the, the ones that showed up in Athens, are kind of engaging with this future vision of, of what Athens might have looked like that we developed in the animated short. Um, I think that's kind of important. You know, um, I'd resisted doing a TED talk for years and years and years. Um, <laughs> because I, I always thought they were formulaic and problematic. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, you know, I made Planet City as a book, you know, it's out there in the world. Um, and you know, I can't remember what the print run was, but it was pretty decent in that context. Um, but it's still, you know, a few thousand people that, that have got a copy of it. But I think my TED Talks now at a couple million views, you know, um, and there are people there that, that have watched it you know, they, they watch TED Talks as they fall asleep at night. You know, that's still a pretty rarefied audience, to be honest, right, but compared right. to the rarefied audience of architecture and design books, it's right. massive, you know? Right, right. Um, I, I mean, I think there was a, uh, and I'm, I'm still not answering your specific question about Planet City, but I'll get to that. But 
you know, I, I remember, I, I can't exactly remember the, the specifics of it, but the most popular architecture book ever, like the, the best-selling book in the history of all best-selling architecture books, um, still sold less copies than there are viewers at 3 a.m. watching an infomercial for a thigh <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, that's, a, maybe... that's a way to make it feel good. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, um, I've been on this campaign to try and find ways that, you know, I can, again, co-opt, you know, more popular mediums to to contain and to be um, I love that. Uh, conduits yeah. for a lot of these ideas. So that's kind of why, you know, I'm, I'm engaged in um, larger film and TV productions here in Los Angeles. Um, the difference between the two is just that, you know, sometimes I'm playing in my own world and sometimes um, I'm playing in someone else's. Um, so Planet mm -hmm. City was really, a, you know, it's a self-initiated project. I'm fortunate enough and privileged enough to be get invited to do things where the brief is like pitch us a project. And what I try and do with our work um, is sort of, you know, lick my finger and put it up into the breeze and get a sense for where the wind is blowing and, and try and make work that operates and is relevant in that moment. Hmm. Um, you know, our process of world building begins with a deep engagement of the present. One of my practices is, is a studio called Unknown Fields that I run with another architect called Kate Davies. It's a documentary studio. And a lot of my speculative projects will begin through, you know, the work that we do in Unknown Fields, which is getting on a plane, as we used to before the pandemic, and traveling to a place um, that we would describe as the future in the present tense and documenting that. Um, you know, a much used and, and now cliche quote in the world of futures is from William Gibson, which, you know, who describes the future's already here, it's just not evenly distributed. And we take that, you know, exceptionally literally and pragmatically, um, right. which means that, okay, well, there's future out there somewhere so we could you know, book a ticket and go there and check it out. Um, and we document that and we make work, you know, in, mm. in a documentary space um, that's kind of visualizing and, and kind of picking up on these weak signals. And really our job is just to listen um, to the stories of those places and, and help to amplify the voices of the people who have been devoting their lives to to dealing with those contexts. Um, we don't pretend to try and solve their problems or understand their situation in the, the couple of weeks that we're there. But, you know, that engagement does form a lot of the research that I would then extrapolate and exaggerate into my own fictions. Um, right. And Planet City became, began in that same way. Um, a lot of the work we were doing as research was taking us to like the world's largest solar field, um, the world's largest wind energy farm, mm. um, the world's biggest data center. And I was interested in these massive infrastructures that lie behind the scenes of the modern city. Um, infrastructures that have the capacity to dig us out of the holes that we've created for ourselves, right? Like, you know, the renewable energy industry is extraordinary and it's been operating on the same proven technologies for the last 15 years. Um, yet political bias, um, our own blind spots and prejudices are keeping these systems down. So I wanted to create a speculative project that would imagine what would happen if you fully embraced a lot of the technologies of 
climate change and engineering that currently exist and roll them out at scales that were meaningful. Um, and that's really what Planet City is, is just kind of exaggerating these technologies right. that already exist and seeing the extraordinary worlds they might set in motion. Um, so Planet City is a single city for 10 billion people, the entire population of the Earth. Um, it works, you know, it, it, there's no technology in the city that doesn't already exist. Um, it's not a sci-fi where we've kind of solved fusion energy or, um, you know, we've harnessed, you know, rare earth from asteroids to make it happen. The only thing that changes is our cultural and political mindset. And right. what it facilitates is the, you know, planetary scale reversal of colonialism, the attempt to return stolen lands, um, replant the planet as a giant um, carbon sequestration machine. Um, you know, because if we look at the densest cities that we currently have created, if we all live in that context, we only need to occupy 0.02% of the earth. Um, yeah. Why aren't we doing that? Um, uh, I mean, that's not to say we should. Again, Planet City is a provocation, but hopefully through the lens of Planet City, we see our own cities differently. And if we can get things working at the scale of 10 billion, then really there's nothing stopping us reimagining or rewiring Los Angeles or New York or London. Um, right. So that's the impetus of the project. And to go back to my original point, it's it's trying to co-opt the, the mediums of, of visual storytelling in film to talk about the realities that climate change is no longer a technological problem. It's a cultural problem. Right. Um, so I'm right. interested in making work that operates in uh, on the front lines of that cultural issue and discussion. Yeah, I mean, it's an amazing project. Um, I, I encourage listeners to go, you know, watch that TED Talk and, and get the get whatever copies of that whatever thousand print run, <laughs> you know, grab those. My last question usually is I'm curious what people are reading right now. And so I'm going to ask you that. I'm curious what you're reading, but I'm also going to expand it to to other media uh, just based on this conversation. Um, what, what, are, what are you kind of looking at right now, whether that's books, movies, video games, uh, TV? What's, what's in your, your mind right now? Yeah, I mean, I'm obviously, um, uh, you know, a voracious digester of all things speculative fiction and science fiction. Um, and that's often where I locate my um, extracurricular activities as well. <laughs> yeah. um, I assumed so. That's why I asked. Uh, that's why I expanded the question. Yeah, but I mean, I, I guess I, I, I you know, and I, and I, I'm, I'm not like, you know, exclusive about that either. I, I'll watch all kinds of crap from Marvel superhero cape crusaders to, um, you know, you know, rewatching Solaris and, and <laughs> um, you know, geeking out on like, you know, the films that we're supposed to watch. Right. Um, right. I'm, I guess I'm interested in the way that most science fiction visions um, uh, deal with cliche, right. Mm. Um you know, there's a whole lot of tropes and, and the biggest part of what I do, especially in my um, world building for, for film and TV here in Hollywood is attempts to avoid those tropes and cliches. Mm -hmm. um, but at the same time, 
lot of my work will lean on them because they're a shorthand. Um, right. And right. audiences can start to connect with them. I mean, a lot of people in speculative design or speculative futures spend a lot of energy trying to determine and, and imagine new aesthetic languages of the future. Um, whereas our work tends to, be, tends to be a bit more familiar because I, I think there is value in trope. I think there is value in, in leaning into genre because, it, again, it creates a, a kind of a shared language through which you can then start talking about other kinds of ideas. Um, but at the same time, a work like Planet City, um, I mean, even the, like Swan Song, um, all of our projects are, are trying to, you know, find alternatives to the dominant narratives that we often might consume, right? Mm. Um, you know, cyberpunk imagines the messy subcultures of the virtual. Um, you know, we see a future world um, where, you know, our assumptions about industrialization are reinforced. Density is supposed to be dirty and congested. Right. Um, you know, the future city is always some kind of tragic encounter removed from our natural life in the idyllic countryside. Um, uh, we're either retreating in most science fiction into some you know, Western-centric pastoral nostalgia for the countryside as, as most utopian visions. Maybe they stack it vertically or they put trees mm -hmm. on the roofs of gleaming white glass buildings. Um, or there's some kind of colonialist dystopian skyline of a mega corporation or a right, right. fascist dictatorship. And generally there's some white, you know, um, disheveled hero who, like, finds a way to, you know, against all odds overthrow said... Um, uh, capitalist mega conglomerate. Um, uh, you know, we're trying to make work that moves beyond those outmoded um, right. tropes, right? Um, science fiction is not a project of satis satire, but perhaps could be understood as simultaneously utopian and dystopian at the same time. Um, you know, solar punk projects aspire to communities of of ecotech and and trying to visualize some sort of aspirational future but have also become you know windmills on roofs and gooey green stuff draped across more familiar sorts of cities um uh in this moment you know planet city i hope could be described as you know a, a new aesthetic language for the future perhaps it's an artifact of what we could call not cyberpunk or solar punk, but perhaps planetary punk um, mm. Mm. or infrapunk, infrastructure yeah. punk. Yeah. Um, you know, a world that embraces the ideological and cultural consequences of planetary scaled computation. And to go back to our very first point in the conversation, um, this planetary conception of site and place that we right. all find ourselves within. Um, right. I mean, I finished my description of Planet City really um, by saying that we're all already living in a planetary scaled city. Um, right. It's just this sort of dis dis discontinuous megastructure that hides in plain sight that we are all citizens of. The real sort of fantasy or absurdity about the project is not the fiction of Planet City itself, but it's business as usual. Um, you know, the idea that we can continue as we do without change um that's the that's the fantasy that we're all living right now 
not anything we could come up with. Right. Uh, I think I think that brings us full circle, which is a great way to end this conversation. Uh, Liam, this was so great. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. Yeah, thanks for the, thanks for the chat. I uh, really enjoyed it. This episode was recorded on March 25th, 2022. Our theme music is by Andy Borgasani. We're on Twitter and Instagram at Surface Podcast. You can support the show on Patreon and find previous episodes wherever you get your podcasts and at scratchingthesurface.fm. Thanks for listening.